Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Murph is here. Hello Hi, there. Karen. Ken's here. Hi, Owen. How are you? And Owen is here. I'm, uh, I'm good, Ken. I'm back Owen s- is here. I'm back safe and sound from Smithy's Thag. Oh. I heard you guys uh, discussing my weekend on the podcast while I was gone. Did you uh, did you enjoy yourself? Well, did I, well, no, more importantly, did it go off without a hitch? Well, you see, you seem to be putting out. How this was the organisation? Yeah. You see, this is the impression you're putting out. I, I, I've got a bone to pick here. Yeah. You know? Okay. It, it was as though I have some sort of mother hen type of mentality <laughs> that maybe I'd be ordering thirty men around Valencia in a in a bossy fashion. Mm-hmm. I resented that I allowed people to have fun I mean in a highly organised and efficient manner where yeah. appropriate yeah, yeah. thanks they'd all brought their their uh, brochure and itinerary with them there was plenty of scope <laughs> for light hearted uh, enjoyment horseplay yeah you know uh, as long as it was kept fairly low key yeah. and uh, the main man's uh, reputation didn't take a pound in. The uh, there was no need for the printed itineraries Murph this is something I discovered because of a little technological development called WhatsApp Oh. It's amazing when you're organising a stag, a stag. Address of apartment, name of bar, restaurant, stick it on. You still do get the odd annoying question. Yeah. Like, where is it? what restaurant are we going to? And then you say, I put it on WhatsApp. And then they say, will you just WhatsApp it to me again? Oh, well, no, because you see, I put it on the WhatsApp. Why don't you just scroll up? <laughs> I scroll up there, load earlier, and yeah. you'll have all the information you need. So you, you do get that the odd time, but uh, no, all in all, yeah, good stuff. I know. Say you, no one tried that one twice. <laughs> I know you're. Put them in your place. I know you're quite struck by the sheer number of men in this tag, Ken. It is the biggest one I've ever heard of. Well, certainly the biggest one I far away of, from home. Yeah, I, I heard of of uh, fifty one lads going to Liverpool. Oh, come on. 51. It's, that sounds, it's a that sounds like the name load. of a song. It's a full coach load. I mean, they might as well have got 52, rented the bus, got yeah. the ferry over. Might as well have got the driver involved at that stage. I mean, you know, who yeah. cares at that stage? I mean, it's not like anyone knows anyone. To, you anyway. wouldn't even have time to meet everybody. 
It would literally be shake hands with everyone on your stag and then you <laughs> see spend the day at that. Let's go home. See some of your thing. I get the impression with a stag like that, man, many of those men mightn't have been ended up going to the wedding. But no, this is a testament to Smithy's popularity, obviously. Mm-hmm. And this, this turnaround of 30 people. One lad had a hell of a trip to get back home. You know the bit at the end of a stag when you need that trip home to be as short as humanly possible. I mean, conversation's not great in the airport necessarily. Yeah. Everyone way, hates each other. They're yeah. all, everyone's sitting alone. 30 different men sitting in 30 different parts of the airport yeah. trying to avoid eye contact with everyone else. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've been there. Well, this fella faced an 8 a.m. flight from Valencia to Paris, all right? Yeah. Then a nice long hauler from Paris to Seattle. And one more John from Seattle to Anchorage in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that so is, that is not pretty. He came all the way from Anchorage yes. to go to Valencia yes. to drink for two nights. Uh, three nights. Three nights. <laughs> that doesn't make any difference. <laughs> That's well, not the yeah. fact of the story here. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he was. He went on Erasmus with Smithy, and uh, probably hasn't seen him in a number of years. And was invited and was delighted to make it over. That's so one of the it. stupidest. I'm sorry, right? Oh, I, 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 I know that you'd like me to speak frankly. That's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. It's one of the most heart. heartwarming. Does he work of, as an airline pilot? No, he's not an airline pilot. That's the I'm stupidest sure thing I've yeah. ever heard. Yeah, I think it's quite touching. Though. You think it's touching? Yeah. Do you? Well. I think it's stupid, so there you go. Well, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what's stupid. Poor old Jack Grealish in Tenerife. Nobody ended up like that. I'm, I'm glad to report. Why do you make it Grealish? Oh, brilliant. Uh, Jack Grealish. For people who haven't seen this, I'm sure everyone has, if they're on the internet. Well, Jack Grealish has been um, providing us with minute-by-minute uh, minute coverage of his lads' holiday in Tenerife. So in every, uh, every few minutes on social media... Jack Grealish uh, tweets or Instagrams a, little, a picture of himself doing a Lana Del Rey duck face uh, to the camera with his, with his lad friends uh, off to Tenerife. This should be interesting. That sort of thing. And then, you know, they're off in, they're in Tenerife. And, very, and he always has that sort of um, Victoria Beckham pout. It's bizarre. You know, I'm, yeah. you're a 19-year-old man. What is... That's a facial take or something. What's happening here? Can't actually be a face he's pulling. Anyway. Well, he think he obviously thinks he looks amazing when he does this thing. He does it all the photographs, apart from the one where he's actually lost consciousness. <laughs> so this is the problem. He's been providing the, the photos, the kind of photos he wants us to see. But there is a photo where there's, a, there's no pout in the face. The face is slack with unconsciousness because he appears to be lying on his back in the middle of the road, uh, surrounded by a couple of packs of cigarettes, in what looks to me, Owen, like the soft golden sunshine of early, early morn. And uh, it, someone has taken a photo of him, more or less directly standing over him. Uh, and you can see it's, it's unmistakably greenish. But the best photograph is probably the one from just across the road, where you can see him lying there, uh, apparently dead to the world. Not on the path, I think, but actually on the road. On the road, it looks dangerous. In, in front of a row of, uh, probably not much traffic at that time. I, I mean, I'm guessing it's half five, six in the morning. Um, uh, in front of a little uh, bunch of uh, apartment buildings, nondescript holiday apartments. I'd describe those as. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We've all we've all seen them. We've probably mostly stayed in them, and uh, I don't know. Jack Grealish is uh, looks to be having a good time on all this. Don't worry, I did watch Ireland Scotland in an Irish park, and there's going to be plenty of negativity in the football podcast. So we'll start with something positive here. Hmm. The atmosphere looked pretty good on TV. It was good. Largely because of the Scots. But the Irish seemed to respond, certainly before the There was the loads game. of Scots. Yeah. Loads of Scots all over there. the stadium. They were talking about 10,000 on TV? Yeah, there was. The, I don't know if there was necessarily 10,000. But I mean, there was 3,500 had tickets, you know, and they were down in the little Scotland then. But you could see then uh, whole sections of the stadium were full of Scots. 
which had been empty during the England game. And apparently a lot of these Scottish fans had bought the package of England plus Scotland uh, from the FAI. So they didn't bother turning up to the England-Ireland game, but they all kind of then used the second half of the package. Um, there was tons of them in the stand just to the left of the of the press box anyway. Um, Thankfully, no no trouble between the two uh, no, sets of supporters. No tension. Yeah. Uh, no, there was. Um, you know, it was it was it was a good atmosphere. It was a good. It was quite an entertaining match. Mm. Uh, it was a very disappointing outcome. I mean, it's it's an outcome that really leaves Ireland with very little hope. Um, there goes the positivity. Good atmosphere. Everything. Uh, well, else, so. I mean, you know, we, we talked the there for a good well. forty-five seconds our, before our, mentioning our Celtic the cousins. All our Celtic cousins are looking good. Everyone is looking good. And why can't we just be happy for them? You know, why can't we just say, you know, Scotland, Wales, England, Northern Ireland, more power to you guys, you know. Mm. Bon Euro- voyage. This, the, the European uh, Championships 2016 uh, will be all the richer for your presence, mm. you know. Fully one-sixth of the, uh, of the nations uh, going to France will be uh, from these islands. Uh, and only... One of us is going to miss out by the looks of it. What was somewhat frustrating about this one, we find different ways to disappoint. In this one, we had our hopes raised by the first half, and particularly just the attitude, the high pressing, all those great things that disappeared almost entirely in the second half. Maybe that's just down to, uh, I don't know what it's down to. They seem to be freaked out a bit when they conceded an equaliser, but that does happen in football. You you do Mm. sometimes concede goals. You need to try to keep doing what you've been previously doing after that. Yeah, and... You know, Brian Kerr makes a point in his comedy Irish Times today that actually the real key moment of the match was immediately after Scotland's goal when we created a great chance, the best chance that we made in open play when Houlihan got the ball in the middle of the field, managed to turn and hold off a Scottish player such that the Scottish player fell down, unable to... You know, this is, this is a great thing about Houlihan. You know, he's the smallest player on the field but has got great balance. So that guy trying to actually tackle him ends up falling over. Hulin kind of bustles away with the ball and then plays a beautiful pass through into the path of Daryl Murphy, who is a left-footed player, mm. and he runs onto it and hits it with his left foot and just puts it straight to the goalkeeper, you know? At that moment, you know, if you score then, yeah, you're probably going to win the game. I mean, Daryl Murphy didn't manage to, to score. He did obviously help out with the goal that we did score. He got a decent header in and Walters scored a, you know, offside goal but one which counted. Murphy didn't really have a whole lot else, uh, a whole lot more joy in the game. But, you know, we could sit here and go, well, why is Daryl Murphy playing, you know? If Daryl Murphy was an international class striker, would he not surely be playing at least for a lower team in the Premier League? But, uh, you know, you could say that, but would you? do you think that Shane Long definitely would have scored that chance? I'm not sure. You know, maybe Shane Long. Shane Long, in my opinion, is definitely a better player than Darren Murphy. I'm, you know, I'm not quite sure why you would pick Murphy over Long. I mean, I can see why O'Neill is doing it. You know, maybe he thinks Murphy's a bit better in the air. Maybe he's a bit strong. Maybe he thinks Murphy's a better goal scorer. But, you know, I think overall Long is a better footballer. But not, not to the extent, not to the extent that we could all sit there and go, well, this all would have been different. If only Shane Long had played, then... I think we would have, you know, we, he would have scored a couple of goals. You know, we all, we all know that he, he probably presented with the same chance 
we probably would have seen the same outcome. We've got an amazing story later in the show. Paul Devaney is a mountaineer from Longford who's climbed the highest peaks in six of the seven continents. The last frontier for him is Everest. He's had two goals at it, but he's encountered the two worst disasters in the mountains' history. Last year, you might remember the avalanche that killed it was 16 Sherpa, and in April this year, he was there when the earthquake struck Nepal, triggering another devastating avalanche on Everest that killed 19 people. Paul survived by hunkering down in his tent before going out and then tending to the injured climbers, and he'll be in studio after we talk GA because Matthew Clerken and Anthony Moyles have arrived. Lads, how are you? All right, Owen. All good, Owen. Uh, we'll start with Mayo Galway because I know that's where Murph wants to start. Uh, is there uh, a case you made that on reflection, this is a game that Galway had a fair chance to win because it seemed as though it just ebbed away from them in the second half and they were all a bit forlorn in the last 10 minutes. But was, was there a chance for them yesterday? I think there was a big chance for them yesterday. Um, there was probably a 10, maybe 15 minute period in and around when they got the goal in the first half where they actually just completely dominated the game they won I'd say I don't know what the stats exactly are but they just seem to be cleaning up at midfield winning breaking ball putting Mayo under massive pressure um, and they really only yielded the goal from it you know, which was an unbelievable goal but they had the chance of probably three or four points that they should have got like Cummins got one I know Murph might talk about this. He can be so frustrating at times. He got one where a lovely ball was put across onto his run. He got it on his right-hand side. And he really should have taken on his man. But instead, he kind of winds up this shot, which got blocked down. And actually, Mayo came up the field and got a score from it. And I was just there kind of tearing my hair out going, that was an opportunity. Take on your man. At least try and get him to foul you. Um, Because they were really in the ascendancy there. And I felt... If they had turned that around, if they got that 1-3, 1-4 at the time, like the goal papered over a bit of a situation where, as I say, for 10, 12 minutes, they had completely blown Mayo out of the, out mm. of the, out of the water. Um, and Mayo were really living off scraps for that first half. They were living off the fact that Finian Hanley was under major pressure on Aidan O'Shea and was fouling him a lot, as were the other two cornerbacks. Like, fouls, fouls, fouls kept Mayo in that game. Um, and that kind of comes from a situation where you don't have players coming back to kind of double up with O'Shea and with Finian Hanley. And... You know, on the on the flip side with with Killian O'Connor, the Galway full back line were under pressure, but there was some needless fouling as well. Like where a man actually comes in to to double team, and they were just coming in with both hands. You wouldn't see it at under eights. They didn't learn their lessons from the Leitrim game. They gave away a ferocious amount of freeze in the Leitrim game, and exactly like that, I actually thought that that a couple of times, uh, exactly as you were saying, that it wasn't that. You know, it was man on man, and you had to take him down, or you were going to get skinned. They had the numbers back yeah. quite a bit of the time, but just idiotic, like just immature tackling is what it was. You know, just did not know how to bottle these guys up, how to slow them down. Yeah, I think the the, the first half, obviously from a Galway point of view, there was so much of it that was right from from Galway's perspective. But the the main thing being the the attitude was that you absolutely tear into me that there was a, that there was an. Uh, the difference in attitude from, say, two years ago in the same ground where Galway were so limp, so... Um, they, they just waited for Mayo to steamroll them and mm. Mayo duly obliged. Whereas Galway got into Mayo straight away, really, really good. It's just that that naivety in the full back line... Like, you, if you have a free taker of Killian O'Connor's class, like, I think he missed one free inside yeah. 45 yards Very in the entire on. championship yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you can't give him easy freeze. We gave him all of his freeze nearly were gimmies, you know. But and you're right about their intensity from the start. Like if you if you wa- I watched the game back this morning. I was in Thurles yesterday, but I watched it back this morning and right from the throw in there was the two the yellow cards for Lundy and, and Lee, uh, Keegan, Lee yeah. Keegan. 
Um, the cameras uh, got the aftermath of it. Lundy was delighted with himself. Yeah. Absolutely delighted that he had got in a headlock with Lee Keegan from the start. And now Mayo, one of Mayo's really uh, dangerous attacking wing backs is on a yellow card for 70 minutes. And of course, he ended up on a red yeah. at the end. You know, they barreled into them, made sure that the terms of engagement were intense, were narky. Uh, because, you know, Mayo have... Uh, absolutely stood up for themselves over the last few years but they, they'd rather not be like that you know they'd rather not be bitty and narky and, and have the game go scrappy they'd rather you know they'd rather play football play on their terms yeah. Yeah. yeah but I think that ultimately costs goalie like there's the there's the thing of absolutely as Murph said they needed to set a physical marker down yesterday so first five ten minutes you do that you hit anything that moves. If you have an opportunity, if a fella gives it back to you, you make sure you give it back to him twice as hard. You set it up and say, look, I'm going to be here all day for you, no problem. But then you have to settle down. And some of the tackling, like Finian Hanley at one stage came out with, I think it was O'Shea, out towards the sideline. And he blatantly just pushed him in the back when he was going down on the ball and heading out towards the sideline. Like literally, as I said, what an under-14 player did is you take him aside and say, look, you know, you shouldn't really be doing that. And, O'Connor stuck the ball over the bar. Then there was a there was a drag back where, you know, it was very obvious. Seen from the referee, free in. There was about five or six, as, 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 and and it killed goal. Whatever momentum yeah. they had was just whipped away from them for easy scores. I do think it's diff- difficult if you're marking Aidan O'Shea, though, and especially, as you're saying, if you're isolated quite a bit one-on-one with him because he's a big man and he's a habit of swinging that arm a little bit when he catches the yeah. ball. So straight away, the defender's on the back foot. Uh, it almost strikes me that there's not much option but to fail him or else he barrels through and it's an on goal. Yeah, the option does. is to not let him have, you know, The option is to cut him off. The option is not, you know, not to have him be one-on-one inside in a position where people can give him the ball. You know, I think that what what we're really talking about here is the difference between a team that has been on the road and a team that it hasn't. Um, I, I remember exactly the foul you're talking about that Handy did because within five minutes of it, Keith Higgins chased um, Cummins out to the corner flag, and you, anybody who's ever watched Gaelic football knew exactly what what was going on in both players' heads. Cummins was running out to the sideline, hoping. Hoping to get the nudge in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All he wanted was to bend yeah, down over yeah. the ball and feel the breath of Keith Higgins yeah, behind yeah. him, and it's a free. He's going over. Yeah. Higgins stood over him and said, "Go on, do whatever you what, whatever you're going to do." And Cummins dropped the ball, and Higgins walked out of the. Uh, and and the contrast between the two was just the maturity. That's what makes. Keith Higgins one of the best defenders in the country you know and he's been on the road this long he yeah. knows not to do that stupid foul that is in everybody's heads yeah I, I think for, uh, what I would have loved to have seen was just how close goal I would have gotten without the concession of the goal because really mm. the the goal was was just cr- a freak it was a freakish goal but it's not the kind of goal where you can just kind of write it off and say it's no one's fault. Like, oh, it's yes. really, it's the keeper's... Oh, yeah, it's yeah, they, panic. Yeah, they, panic. They, why, is, why is such panic in there? Yeah, and he's actually a brilliant shot. He's one of the best shot, shot stoppers in the country, without doubt, Mass Brannock. But goalkeeper is a problem for goalie. We've had three go- we've had three championship games and three different goalies in the three championship games so far this year, which is, I, I would say, nearly unprecedented, yeah. I would say. Um, and... Unfortunately for Manus Brannock, the, the fact that you're a great shot stopper is the third most important thing to be a good intercounty goalkeeper at the moment. Because the first thing is kickouts. And unfortunately, he's just, he, whether there's not a strategy in place or whether he, it's just not in him, we, do, we didn't have a kickout strategy that worked for us at all yesterday. And composure 
in in within the the fourteen yards of your area, he's he's just not there yet. You know, he's just not there, and it may it may not come for him. And it, I mean, I was watching Donegal Armagh in the Ireland quarter final last year, and unfortunately, the Armagh goalkeeper pretty much lost the lost mm-hmm. the game for yeah. Armagh last year. Just uh, bad kickouts and just unease all the time. Every time the ball went into the into well, I the, think I think he was massively at fault for yesterday as well. But I'm sure we we'll get to that. Yeah, Agreed yeah, you. yeah. But I mean, it's it's like that's really. You know, the, the, the concession of the goal and the, the the manner of the goal, I think, really shook Galway for ten minutes or fifteen minutes afterwards. Because if you look at the the three quarters outside of that, Galway were right in that game, yeah. like very, very much in that game. And you could say that we had probably shaded it, other than that kind of ten or fifteen minutes at the start. Unfortunately, that was the ten or fifteen minutes that decided the game. I think there's two things though going on due to that. Like that's symptomatic of. A porous defence over the last number of years. So you can imagine the talk for the last number of seven, eight weeks, whatever it is. You know, we're going to keep it tight. We're going to really, you know, front up to these forwards. We know the threat they have. But the Galway forwards are full of confidence, OK? You saw Comer yesterday. Like, he was, whatever he did, he did it with a touch of class. He came out, he knocked, hit, hit Shamey O'Shea's shoulder and kind of stood over him, even though they were four points down. But, like, Galway lads will always have, especially forward division, always be confident that they'll get scores, and they generally do. Galway had to tighten it up defence. But with that, and with a lack of maturity, and that's why I was a little bit disappointed with Hanley. Like, he should be leading that. He should be a calm head in there. And you're right, O'Shea is difficult to mark but he's not impossible to mark like if you realise that what he brings to the party is this physical size and, and an ability to go at you you do what I think it was maybe Dublin or Donegal did with him last year I can't remember who it was where you actually run alongside him you don't actually connect with him with regard to physicality because all he wants is you to come at him and he basically mills you out of the way so if you go beside him and say okay take your plays on the ball and then I'll actually come in and engage with you um, which actually happened for the goal they kind of ran alongside That's him true, and he just yeah. got very lucky yeah. you know he yeah. did he, like the ball spilled out of his hand but I think maybe from the panic that was in there, Dwan was 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 like every time he got it, he had his man bottled up, and then the two hands in, as yeah. I say, and simple freeze. Oh, and blessed not to get a yellow card. Blessed not to get. Well, Finian Hanley, I mean, Hanley was lucky yeah, yeah. to be on the field with fifteen twenty minutes to go. He he could have gone easily, mm-hmm. but as I say, that's that's symptomatic of a bit of panic in there. Needed a bit of cool head, and that then is also symptomatic of the fact that. As Malachy says, that bit of experience. Because Aidan O'Shea then came out with 10 or 15 minutes to go. After Galway got the goal, he comes out to midfield and he just says, right, I'm going to calm the show down here. In fairness to Finian Hanny, he did show a bit of composure and experience in that couple of moments before getting sent off where he sat down injured and tried to sit down. For <laughs> yeah, as long as really possible. Yeah. The referee, referee's like, just get up. We all know what's yeah, about to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he was just hoping the referee kind of go, ah, I'll put the, I'll put the card <laughs> yeah, back in my yeah, Maybe yeah. forget what happened. Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, the Aidan O'Shea thing isn't going away for Galway. He's going to be beating us for the next 10 years if we don't get, find a way to handle him. And unfortunately, our our young midfielders, like say at, at halftime, I was... Uh, very happy, obviously, with how it got, how it had gone. Mm. Galway are level, uh, have played really well. The attitude seems right, and if you looked at Flynn and O'Curran and Paul Conroy, who are like basically all playing at midfield, Gary Sice, other than the goal, and Michal Lundy, from those five guys, which is basically our half forward line and midfield, we hadn't actually gotten a performance from any of the five of them, and they were pretty much our mm. five of our yeah, five of our best kept, players. Kept Lundy well out of the game. Yeah, and like you know, when you look at the spring that Lundy had. Mm. 
you know, that's obviously a disappointment. You know, we were obviously hoping to get a lot more from, mm. from Lundy, you Sounds know. Sounds like nobody's too impressed with Mayo then, or we're, we're saying a better team will beat them down the road? Ah, no, I was impressed with Mayo. Like, I mean, that was a massive game for them. Um, Management-wise, we talk, spoke about it last week, the pressure they were under for that game. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an enormous game. It was one of their most important games. Um because of the fact of the rejuvenation of Galway, what they were going to bring to the party. Um, and I thought they were smart yesterday. Yeah. You know, they stuck Keegan on Lundy and they basically said to him, don't even bother going forward. Um, so Keegan just did a man-marking job. And people, if they were thinking of Lee Keegan, they'd say, oh, he'll definitely come up. He'll usually kick one or two points. He'll be a, he'll be a roving halfback. Mm. But Jesse just followed Lundy all around the place. And Lundy, as Murph says, and you can see him even with Curry Fitton, like he is an absolute animal to go and great work rate. But he was taken out of the game. Um, he went on one run, really, in the second half, uh, got a free. But they were smart. Higgins back in there on Cummins was a good move. Um a couple of substitutes ago, it caused problems. Keane was under pressure, but you know they used the bench well. Vaughan came on and did remark. He just turned Gary Sice around and put Gary Sice back into a defensive mode. So, but they have options, Mayo. Like if it takes, you know, when you actually yeah. look at it yesterday, you go, "Wow, they actually have a very, very strong." Yeah, panel. and look, the thing with Mayo is we grade them on a different curve yeah. to everybody else. You know, they, we grade the Kerry and Dublin and Donegal on a certain curve. But they've won their All-Ireland, so, you know, they get a little bit of leeway this time mm. of year. We grade the teams below, the Corks, the Monhans, the Galways, all of these kind of guys on a different curve because they're probably just not good enough to win it in the end. Whereas Mayo are right in the middle, better than all the, the teams rest. below mm-hmm. them, but they don't have their All-Ireland, so we can't say that they're as good as the teams above them. So we, so at this time of the year, we panic for Mayo. Are they good enough? Have they, have they found two or three more players? Mm. I actually thought Damon O'Connor was very good yesterday. Mm. He came into it, he's a bit, bit of bulk to him, you know, wasn't pushed off the ball, looked a year more seasoned than he was last year. But we're not judging Mayo by being able to beat Galway in June. We're judging them by, are they going to be able to beat somebody in August and September? Yeah, even, even one of the questions he was asked on TV afterwards, Aidan O'Shea was asked in the post-match interview, was, uh, you, you know, you got an easier run of it the last couple of years against Galway. Will this will this stand? Is this the test you needed to bring you on? It's it's a, Every question is framed around yeah, what happens at the end of the year. Of course it is. And, and actually it's, a legitimate win. And, it, and look, that's the way it... That's the way sport is, you know. Yeah. Remember how we used to talk about Leinster rugby before they won the Heineken Cup? You know, we, they were yeah. a source of derision. And then once you win, that's over. That's gone. The way people yeah. talk about you is completely different. Tony Gall, it's funny. If you were talking about Galway's indiscipline, there was a, Keith Duggan had a stat about Tony Gall that they didn't concede a, a free inside a scoreable range mm. for 47 minutes or something like that. Uh, which, you know, maybe lends credence to what Kieran McGinney was saying. I know he defended himself after the game that, well, they don't actually hit that hard or fell that much. They just play in a very uh, a very intelligent manner. It's an incredible stat that they're in a high-pressure game. I just And it happened quite a few games last year where they yeah. just don't give away frees. I think they're an amazing team. I think they're an amazing sports team. No matter what sport you're into, what you, know, what, what you like seeing in a sport, um, I think they're, they're an incredible outfit. I really enjoyed watching that game. I really enjoyed the intelligence of these guys. Like, you know, the people people give out about blanket defences and, and what have you. But what you saw yesterday was the difference between a team who knows how to do it and a team who are maybe starting out and maybe going to have a go at it properly. Donegal are four years into this, whatever they're into it. But my God, the level of of game intelligence, the level of running off the ball, the just 
they do it so well. And I, 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 it's, I think they're one of the most exciting teams of my lifetime. They really, I really, really enjoyed watching. Yeah, I agree completely with you. Kieran McGinney said after the, the game that, and he seemed to have a very clear idea of why Donegal won the game, which would lead you to think, well, yeah. yes. Yes. Stopping it is another, is another matter altogether. But he, he said Donegal are just good at those one twos through the 65s, getting support runners off the shoulder, stretching out. They open up the game and they're very good at it. And that's yeah. basically it. Yeah. I mean, they, they have an ability to. Um, to work three on twos, you know, like it's it's yeah. basically what rugby is, you know, in in a nutshell. Is if you have an extra man in a given situation, put the ball through the hands, and the extra guy steams through. That's mm. you know, and Donegal just have an intuitive understanding of how to do that, mm. how to just make it look so easy. Yeah. Just if you've got three guys running through an area where there are two defenders, just two passes should get the third man through, and they they have an ability to get. The best players, the third person is the best player to get the ball yeah. in that situation, and they always do it. Mm. And it's, you know, the the first thirty minutes, the first twenty five minutes of that. Uh, I mean, we're probably not going to see better, you know, in a, yeah. in, you know, probably not going to yeah. see better all summer than what we saw from Donegal yesterday. I mean, we we were sitting here a couple of weeks ago, Muzzy, talking about, well, would Jim McGuinness make a contender of, you know, of any team in the country? You know, should we be asking the same question of Michael Murphy? Because I mean, the guys, the guys, uh, he's absurdly good, and he's everything you ask for in in a leader. I mean, I, I heard a story that uh, during the week last week that he's he texted every single player in the Donegal panel like a different text, outlining exactly what's expected of you. This week, now, was, know, it to- was it a totally different text, or was it an obvious group text that just no. had the name changed no. at the top? <laughs> 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 but I mean, like, like, that, like what? we've all got them. Nobody yeah, responds. Yeah. You know, hey, you know, hey horse, yeah, 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 big man, hey, big man, yeah. The name and then a few spaces because yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, he is—he's pretty much, you know, the archetypal. You know, if if you could if you could make a footballer that can really make a difference in the game as it is today it's my it's michael murphy i mean he's there's just no stopping him it is true um i'm worried about his tongue he keeps his, he leaves his tongue out a lot he does yeah <laughs> you'll see I'm, he's gonna chop it off one day put it back in Murph. <laughs> but i have to say i agree with the boys but at the same time armagh could not have been worse for those 25 minutes i watched it i watched because after 25 minutes game was over that's it the old adage of you don't go one four one five behind donegal yeah. and then expect to win because literally it's just good luck and thanks yeah. so mcgini says right what are we going to do here the usual let's keep it tight let's not give them a start they leave one-on-one paddy mcbrarty in with one of the smallest defenders armagh yeah. have they launch a 60-yard ball in on top of him. Nothing fancy about it. The goalkeeper stands on his line looking at this thing coming. If that was Paul Herity, McBurty be, I'd say, still in hospital today, yeah. right? Clean that out, settle it down. They then give three frees away in a row. Kieran McKeever comes out, hits McBurty again. A, s- a silly tag, bang. Michael Murphy sticks it over the bar. They, do re- they did some ridiculous fouling. You know, again, just like on the goalway, the flip side, you know, mad for the game, psyched up, but yet... The head fried, hitting lads when you shouldn't be hitting lads, going down on balls, giving freeze away, and Michael Murphy stepping up from as far out as you Wherever like, you lads. Want. Yeah. Sixty, will I go back sixty-five? I'll, I'll still stick it over, yeah. and <laughs> no bother. And I'll do it with a little bit. I'll put a curl on it, whatever. You, so one, three, one, four down to zero, and then they're attacking. They're very laboured, slow, slow, throwing hand passes away, like simple, simple mistakes, and Donegal back on the attack. 
And even worse then, our ma fellas not even chasing back. I watched two or three of them just actually stop, pass a man on. And this is Donegal. You do not pass a man on against Donegal. You go back as hard as you can. There was a small little cameo which completely, I thought, just was the difference between the teams. Ryan McHugh, or Mark McHugh, found himself in midfield. I don't know why, because he was actually playing behind the last defender almost, yeah, yeah. Uh, as a sweeper. But he found himself in midfield for some reason the first half. He went up for a kick-out and one of the Armabies, the number nine, I uh, can't think of his name now, but anyway, he won it over his head. McHugh landed and sprinted as hard as I've ever... Like, he literally went like he was in the 100-metre dash all the way back as the ball, as the play was developing. And he got back there and the ball was kicked wide and he continued his run into the goal mouth and turned around and came back. <laughs> and I was kind of going, that was very strange. But the flip side of the coin happened and the number 11 for Armagh, ball broke down, someone got him, behind him and pass him out two Donegal lads pass him out and he st- he kind of jogged and then he just decided to walk yeah the next guy but that, this is that's amazing from a Kieran McGinney managed team well it is but I the the point it, and it's exactly well made this is what Donegal do to you mm. they come for your legs and then they break your mind and when you're 1-5 to a point down and your cha- and Ryan McHugh has just give done a little give and gone, mm. and you're gonna have you know you're gonna have to chase him for fifty yards up the pitch. Very easy, just go off. Yeah, you're yeah. done. You're done. You're done. <laughs> Absolutely. And unfortunately, that's what our man did. Like they yeah. put up the white flag. It was all over, as I say, after twenty odd minutes. I think as well, though, you're exactly right about their goal. Like I could not for the life. I can understand. It. Like James Morgan is a really really tight yeah. defender. Well, he did, did well did, on McBurty But, he, but he did a great job on, on Colm Cooper in all our yep. club semi-final a couple of years ago and has, a, has this name as the best man marker in, in Armagh. I un, totally understand leaving him one-on-one with McBurty, but not in the first five minutes of the game mm. when Donegal, you know, it, <laughs> in an All-Ireland final decided to kick the ball in long for the first five mm. minutes and see could they get a goal that would break the game. Like, yeah. like that's brainless. Pretty brainless. But yeah. also, McBurty scored a point around the 27th minute um, where he came out, mm. beat Morgan out to it, collected on the D, looped out around and put it over. It was big left foot. Left yeah. foot big soaring point. Brilliant point. You know, great, great corner forward score. But what was really interesting about it was that Michael Murphy was able to play a ball into him with one hop. Against the blanket defence, yeah. Yeah, 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 from I, midfield, like yeah. got got time enough on the ball to look up, play a pass in that didn't like it didn't go above sort of ten fifteen yards in the air. Hopped into McBrady's chest, he was able to loop out and around and yeah. put it over the bar. And if you actually go back and look at that score, Kieran McKeever is standing as McBrady comes around yeah. and has a chance to come and block. Like I'm just saying, there's no doubt about Donegal; they're a masterful yes. team, yeah. right? But but Armagh had this line of defenders. If you look at the game, and it's hard from TV really to see it, but I've, I've watched it numerous times. And their line was out at around maybe the 50. That's exactly right, mm. yeah. When Donegal yeah. do it, they do the three lines, yeah. you know. And, so and you the, McGee, the, the McGee's one. don't go out to the 45. They don't go out. So they had this, they had this very yeah. high line, if you want to call it. And once they got in behind that, you know, the, the Armagh fellas were kind of turning around, looking at this and going, well... We leave those boys look out. I'm I'm checking the runners instead of getting back and trying to double up on players. It, and as I say, they probably wouldn't have won the game, but they certainly didn't help themselves. Two other games to touch on, lads. You mentioned the tip game earlier. That was when you were covering. I was at a yesterday in Thurles. Yeah. Uh, decent effort by tip. Uh, and but to an extent, yeah. I mean, like they uh, they were one two to a point up after ten minutes. 
they needed to be 2-5 to a point up after 10 minutes because they, like, Kerry did not touch the ball in the opening 10 minutes. They were they were asleep. Like, uh, Gooch, Donaghy, uh, Barry John Keane and Paul Gini, I think the earliest any of them touched the ball in the, in the tip half was about after 15, 20 minutes. Like, they just couldn't get the ball up the pitch uh, and Tip were winning everything in midfield. They were running at the Kerry defence but they kicked four brainless wides in the first ten, first eight minutes, um, and one and they had one point where Philip Austin got right in. He he almost ran too close to the goal, and had to refarm it out, and they had to fist it over the bar. But like you know, there was a goal on there. Um, so in that ten minute spell, they just didn't put enough clear water between them, and then Kerry got you know got on top, scored a goal, then scored another. Tip came back and scored a second goal just within a minute of, of Kerry's second one. And it got to half time, there's only two points in it. So what they really needed was for the first 10, 15 minutes after half time to be a point each mm. or two points to one or something, a, a nothing 10 minutes. But in that 10 minutes, Kerry kicked five points and Tip kicked five wides, and that was it. It was over. And Meath uh, Wicklow was maybe a little tighter than you might have hoped for Anthony at 312 concession. A little higher than expected. At home to, uh, at home to Wicklow. It's, now, now, Murph, just because Galway rejuvenated. There's room for Rejuvenated with their, with their defeat, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, there's massive room for improvement. Scary, I would say. Now, a, a very young back, Brian Power was in full-back, who was the minor full-back a number of, say, three, four years ago. Um, James McIntyre in beside him. A lack of experience in there. But at the same time, Kevin Riley probably won't be fit. Brian Menton will be back. Like, it's alarming. And, and the more alarming thing is, there was all these rumours going on about Wicklow. You know, Kilmacud supposedly hammered them in a challenge game two weeks ago. Now, as, as, as one of the boys was saying, Kilmacud are a good club team. They probably would hammer most county teams. But supposedly they couldn't feel the team against Wexford two weeks ago in a challenge game. Now, I don't know if Johnny McGee and the boys were putting out the old rope-a-dope and throwing <laughs> yeah. out a few stories. Because... They certainly, they they probably could have had five goals against me. Like, they should have scored five goals. And it wasn't a situation, they probably could have had another three or four points. So that's 5-14, 5-15. an enormous score. That'll win you most games. Yeah. Like 3-12, I, I actually went through it last night. 3-12 is the most Wicklow have ever scored in the Leinster Championship and not won. By six points. Yeah, well, is. I would well imagine. Thanks for making me even more depressed. If, you, if you told me, if, if you told me that's the most Wicklow I've ever scored in the Leinster Championship, <laughs> win or lose, I wouldn't have been that surprised. Yeah, the combination the of the was, whole. Yeah, the yeah. thing was though, Moisey, I couldn't understand in in the build up why uh, why it was just totally assumed that it was going to be a mm. cakewalk mm. because the first five names on the Meath team sheet were missing. Yeah, you take Riley, Menton, Gillespie, Shane O'Rourke, Mickey and Newman. Mickey Newman. Like that's, and Eamon Wallace was on was on the bench. Like yeah. that's, you know, you're not talking a couple of wing backs and maybe a midfielder here. Like that's the absolute spine of yeah. the team. Yeah. I don't care who you are, you're not taking the spine of your team out and beating a team by 15 points. No. Like that's, I, I and the bookies with an 11 point 11 spread. point handicap. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe yeah. it. You know, so it's it's worrying on. It's very worrying. Like, and as I say, the more worrying aspect is that there's no kind of plan B. You know, like 
Johnny McGee was talking to you saying they were going to set up defensive and they didn't set up defensive Wicklow but what they did was they got their half forwards back very quickly but Mead showed nothing of that they have a half forward line Mead who I don't mind saying are just they're not work they have no work rate like Graham Riley is absolutely brilliant when he gets the ball going forward doesn't do it the other way or, or kind of tr- maybe does it a little bit they have they in the modern game and we all know it like Mead are just open they're open and you can't expose a full back line of lads who are 20, 21 yeah. years of age to that. I don't care who's in there, you're going to get annihilated. Like the midfield is, you know, Rooney and Adam Flanagan, who were also on that minor team. There was six of that minor team yesterday. So you can't, you need to say, right, well, we're just going to shore it up here a bit because Westmead uh, impressed me. Last 10 minutes, they absolutely blitz Wexford and uh, they'll be up for this one. So a lot of improvement to be, to be done. All right, we'll leave it on that downbeat note. Anthony? Uh, great stuff, Maliki. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, aestheticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. Yeah, I got to say that's one of my favourite quotes uh, on Donegal's resurgence over the last few, few years, Mir from Maliki. They come for your legs and break your mind. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's basically it. Um, another interesting quote that I saw as well just was Rory Gallagher making uh, a point of uh, hailing Donegal's natural-born footballers. Um, I think it is. I don't. I don't think it's overlooked particularly anymore. But um, in the rush to canonise Jim McGuinness, there was maybe at the start of the history of this team. Uh, 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 you know, a tendency to just focus on how defensive they were, system, whatever, physical strength, etc. Like these guys have brilliant footballers, mm. and uh, you know, some of them are getting better and better every year. Like McBurty is already having a really, really good year. Like if if Donegal keep McBurty playing the way he's playing at the moment, it's it kind of moves them on to another level again. Because, you know, you can actually afford... This idea that you have to have Murphy out the field, but you also need someone like Murphy inside, that's McBearty now nearly. Yep. And, like, that's that's a scary prospect. Well, as Maliki was saying, uh, one of the most exciting teams he's seen in his lifetime. You don't see them referred to as that. Uh, no. I've heard them referred to as that very often, but I think it's fair enough. Oh. I mean, they really crushed, really crushed Armagh and are quite, quite good at crushing uh, the other teams in Ulster now, where it's supposed to be difficult for them. Yeah, and I mean... If, you can go all the way back, I think. You know, like the Ulster final of 2012. Like, they were just brilliant. And they have been brilliant for, for ages. And you can talk... Like, I mean, if you're talking about teams that are bad to watch, I think you're talking now about, you know, teams like Derry. Uh, you know, Donegal are just way above that. Way, way, way above that. Um, and I want to I want to keep... I want to see them keep winning, to be honest. I want to make sure that they're in the semi-finals and final because... Uh, they will take serious beating. Coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to leave it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I went down to Anfield and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shiny man? <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, the Republic of Ireland now. I have. Well, Martin O'Neill says we're still well in the group. Um, But, I mean, we are in the group, but we're not going to get out of the group. We're going to stay in the group (laughs) as three teams escape. There there is no relegation from this group. Um, Uh, No, no relegation. It will just be us entombed forever, (laughs) uh, along with Georgia and Gibraltar, 
as the other three teams uh, go on to either the Euros or the playoffs. Forget about the content, Ken. Tell me about the personnel. Are the rumours true? Are we going to have three of Irish football's foremost journalistic minds in studio altogether? One, Ken Early. Two, Emma Malone. Three, Dion Fanning. Well, that's what I've heard. Amazing. Uh, well, I actually thought he was going to go with four own to continue his uh, recent habit <laughs> of referring to himself in the third person. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Owen is not amused. Owen will continue to present the show. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we'll have the boys in a little bit later on. Now, in April this year, Nepal was hit with its worst natural disaster in 84 years. 7.8 magnitude earthquake killed more than 8,000 people and also triggered an avalanche that swept into base camp at Mount Everest where Longford man Paul Devaney was preparing to climb to the peak. Some climbers perished. Paul survived and uh, delighted to say joins us in studio now to tell us an absolutely extraordinary story, Paul. We may need to go back a little bit just to find out your own background. What exactly had you on Everest this year? Uh, well, about 10 years ago, um, I was living and working over in Hong Kong and I was playing Gaelic football with the Hong Kong Gaelic Football Club and there's big tournaments over there, the Asian Gaelic Games Tournament, everything like that. So we're training in kind of hot and humid conditions all the time and someone in the office said to me, you know, you, you should go to base camp. You should just go to Kathmandu, get a Sherpa and go to base camp with all that training done. And I'd never climbed anything before in my life. It was all new. I went there. We spent about seven or eight days getting to base camp and I read about the seven summits on the way to base camp in a book called Into Thin Air, which is probably the worst book you could bring to Everest. I've, I've read it, yeah, yeah. It was about the worst disaster in the history of Everest at that time. And um, having lived through two of the worst disasters in the history of Everest now, it wasn't a good choice of a book. But the, the Seven Summits was in this, and I read about it, and I thought, that, that sounds pretty cool. I'm going to try that. So I got a group of, of uh, my buddies from, from UL, We'd all been to aerospace, um, to university, studied aerospace together. And, uh, yeah, we tried Killy. And the idea was just try Killy and don't say anything about the seven summits. So we tried Killy. We got up Killy. We got down Killy. And, uh, and we were sitting in the pub after in, in Tanzania. And I said to the lads, and that's one of the seven summits done. And it kind of went from there. And some of the guys bailed out for various reasons. Some people didn't get up mountains when we tried them later. Um, and the team whittled down to two people. Myself and a guy from Castle Dermot in Kildare called Nyla Burns. Uh, and we just kept going. And we didn't really think we were going to get to Everest. But we thought we'd see how far we can push this. And we went and done a great, a huge mountain in Alaska called McKinley. And it's a proper three-week expedition, haul and sleds, the whole lot. And we got through it. And we came out the other side of it thinking, wow, maybe we do have a shot at this. And, you know, that we went to Antar- Aconcagua in, in South America after that, and we went up to 7,000 metres and thought, ooh, OK, <laughs> we're doing OK here. <laughs> and off to Antarctica, and before we knew it, Everest was the last one. That's amazing. So the, these are the seven summits on the, on the seven continents. How many people have actually done that over the years? Uh, worldwide, less than 300 people. All right. So it's, it's a small, in, in mountaineering terms, you know, if, if you look at Everest, um, Everest has been climbed about maybe 7,000 times by 4,000 people. Uh, and less than 300 have done the seven summits so it's a small group because Antar- Antarctica is a very difficult mountain to try and get to and organise and, and it's, it's very expensive as well obviously Everest is, is hugely expensive so there are not many folks who, who, who put it on the list So you, know? you can see the appeal of it then once, it's, yeah. once you've done a couple you're thinking this is a fairly exclusive club here you said you were there for the, the, the two natural disasters um, maybe just take us through 2014 briefly first because obviously to get up to date it's, it's, it was the earthquake this year but you were there for the avalanche uh, last year also. That's right Joe. Yeah, it was our first stab at Everest um, and we'd spent about maybe two years training for it 
Uh, we got there. We were 18 days in. Uh, we'd taken a very slow route to base camp, climbed a few mountains on the way, and we were doing the last bit of our major climatization, which was to climb a mountain uh, just over 20,000 feet uh, called Lebochet East. And we were coming up onto the top of that mountain on the fixed ropes, hauling ourselves up to the summit. And you can look right down into base camp and see the ice fall across the way. And as we were coming up onto the summit, there was a huge avalanche between base camp and camp one on Everest in an area called the Kumbu Ice Fall. And that's by far the most dangerous part of the mountain because it's kind of a frozen um, it's a f- kind of a frozen waterfall sitting on top of a moving glacier. Uh, and uh, there was a group of about 25 Sherpas were moving uh, equipment up to Camp 1, trying to set up the camp for the climbers coming in the next week. And a huge serac or overhanging piece of ice broke free from above them. It, it was about the size of a house. Um, it came hurtling down as large blocks of ice, blocks that might be the size, you know, of maybe maybe four foot square, some of them the size of a car, um, and it killed 16 of them straight away. Uh, 13 of them were found, three have never been found, and there was a good half dozen uh, other Sherpa that were seriously injured, never work again. So that that became, I guess in numbers terms, the biggest disaster in Everest history. But it, it, it caused a strike to start from the Sherpa side where they said, right, enough is enough. We need some, we need some conditions here. There's no, there's no social welfare in Nepal. There's no pension system in Nepal. When you work on the mountain, you take the risk. If it doesn't work out, you're done. Uh, and a lot of the Sherpa will try and put their families through private school and try and kind of lift the floor a little bit, you know, get good education, everything else. And, and so they get paid well, but they put their money into these things. So when the money stops, everything stops, education, the whole lot. So they wanted some conditions. They also wanted practical things like helicopters at base camp, all the rest of it, which we didn't have. There was no helicopters. We had to call private companies to send helicopters up to fish these guys out. And so there was a list of about 15 demands made. uh, And we went into a week-long strike scenario. There were meetings held every day. Some of them were in Nepali. Some of them were in English. We attended some of them. We didn't attend others. And as the week went on, every day you went from, are we still going to, are we going home? And it just cycled like that the whole week. Some teams that had been affected by the avalanche left. Uh, other teams like ourselves stayed. Uh, and then by about seven days later, 25th of April last year, they just called a halt and said, that's it. We're, we're, the mountain isn't closed, but all climbing is effectively stopped. Right. right. But you were back this year. We're back this year, yeah. We decided to keep going with the training, um, give it one more lash. The, the permit from last year, which is worth about $11,000, was valid again. So we decided, well, look, at, we need to push this off or we can go back. Um, so we stuck into training again and headed back. And you were thinking this time, right, last year there was a huge avalanche, you know. You're looking down through the list of risks, the, what has happened in the past, all the rest of it. What's the worst that could happen? And, and then the ground starts to move. Yeah, can you tell us where you were at that point? How far up had you gotten this time? We'd got, we were at base camp again. Um, so we, we'd, we'd had a different route to base camp. I completely redesigned the itinerary because of what happened last year. I didn't want us in the icefall unless we needed to be in it. So I'd cut out a whole lot of icefall crossings. We were at base camp. We'd been in the icefall the previous day, trying it out. We'd gone up about 70% of the way to Camp 1. Uh, We were on our rest day, and we were going to Camp 1 that night. And then we would, from there, go to Camp 2 and Camp 3, and then we'd go the whole way back down and back up again. So we were on our rest day. Rest morning is about 11.30. Um, I'd say maybe a third of base camp was at base camp and the rest were all up at camp one and camp two on the first rotation. Um, and then everything just started to very slowly move from side to side to begin with. And then a sudden jerk and we ran outside. We were in our, our dining tent, 
ran outside and the whole glacier, because we're, we're all on the glacier, the whole glacier is moving pretty dramatically from side to side. And we think, we still think, because we can hear this huge rumble, that this is an avalanche. It hasn't even entered our heads yet, that the ground under you is moving laterally. This is not an avalanche. Um, and we're looking up at the icefall on Everest because we're right underneath it, waiting for it to collapse on us. Because if it collapsed, it would get to us. And we're so sure of our position at base camp that you, you look around you and all of the mountains are too far away. You know, there's, there's no avalanche going to come into base camp unless the icefall collapses. And staring up there for about half a minute as the whole thing is moving around us, and we didn't notice that behind us a mountain called Pomori had avalanche. The whole Serac at the top of the mountain had collapsed. It had fallen about 1,000 metres, and it had crashed on a plateau, which is about the same level as base camp. And the energy of that crash caused a shockwave, and the shockwave just spread out across base camp, started to pick up rocks, started to pick up people, started to pick up tents. It must have been travelling at three, 400 kilometres an hour. Um, and it was like a small bomb going off in the middle of base camp. We got the edge of that, so what was, by the time we saw it, it was about 50 feet away, so we had very little reaction time. We had a couple of seconds to figure out what we're going to do. Uh, the easiest thing to do was to run back inside the dining tent because it was a pretty big structure, get under the table, shut the door, and hope that some of the energy of what was coming at us could be taken by either the table on top of us or the tent itself. I mean, that's all you could do. You're, you're in a plastic bag with a huge avalanche coming at you, so there's not, there's not, not great options. Uh, there's, you, you put a video of this online, which is just stunning to watch, uh, just the, the, the fear that naturally everybody has at that moment. Can you just describe that decision-making process? Is it, suddenly, is there a clarity in what people are thinking? Is it just blind panic? What's going on at this age when you've got this coming at you? Uh, everyone has a different kind of decision-making process. Um, all I could think of was like those videos you saw when you, you were a kid on the TV from, you know, in the US or in Japan where they're doing all of these, uh, these practices for earthquakes and they're always getting under something. Mm. Get in something, get under something. And all I could think of was get low and get under a structure that might be able to take the energy. I'm an engineer, so that's kind of how my mind works. There was another guy in our team, a French guy, and his, all he could think of was someone needs to hold the pole holding up this tent because if they don't, the tent's going to fall down. Now, he thought of that. Nobody else thought of that. We didn't think of that. I didn't think of that. Um, and that was a hugely brave thing to do because he was standing up rather than lying down. Um, so, and, and he knew that if, if, if the pole collapsed, we could suffocate. Now, normally in an avalanche, you're, we're trained in this. Do not get into your tent because if you get into your tent, your tent will collapse. You'll be now under a tent under snow and you can suffocate very, very quickly. Um, so it just makes it harder to punch your way back into air. Um, so normally we don't get into a tent. But we looked around and in the, those split seconds, you're looking for something. You're looking for a large structure. There isn't one. The rocks are back up closer to where our own individual tents are. And we haven't sat there and picked out our rock, you know. So you're, you're kind of, in a couple of seconds, you're thinking, get low and get something that can take the energy. Um, now, a lot of folks that were in the middle of camp weren't as lucky because they didn't have the, the time to, get, to make those decisions. Uh, there was a chap from Dublin, Paul Greenham, and he was in the middle of camp. And they, the reaction when the earthquake happens is you run outside and you stare at Everest. Right? That's a natural reaction. And the people, while they were staring at Everest, were, were just scooped up by the force of it. Paul tried to outrun it, and it caught up with him um, because it was travelling far too fast, and it scooped him up. Uh, so most people were outside standing up. And that's about the worst thing. It's, it's no fault of their own. It's a natural, innate thing. But uh, the folks who were lying down had a much, much better chance because the injuries were impact injuries from things flying. Having said that, when you're in that tent, 
and this is coming at you and this is hitting the tent, did you think, I'm gone here at any moment? Um, I remember thinking, we're in trouble here. I didn't have this life flashing in front of your eyes. I didn't have this we're going to die moment. But I remember thinking, oh boy, we're in trouble here. Um, and there's a few seconds on that video where we're waiting for it to hit. And that's the worst feeling of all. Uh, because we don't know what's in it. And all, all I could think of in those moments was that last year when the avalanche happened, it wasn't an avalanche of snow like you see on, in the Alps and places like that. It was large boulders of solid ice. And the guys that were killed in that were encased in ice. And it's hard to even get your head around that, you know? Um, so we're, we're looking at this dark cloud, and it was bad visibility anyway. And when you see it coming towards you, you're thinking, what's in that? Is there rocks? Is there lumps of ice? Is there lumps of ice the size of cars? You know, what, what the hell is going to come at us here? So I think when I was lying on the ground, that's, that was my worry, that it doesn't matter what we're under here. Mm. It may not matter whether I'm in a tent or under a table or behind a rock. Whatever's coming is going to get us. What was the scene like for you then when you step out of that tent? We stepped out and everything's covered in a kind of a, 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 a film of snow and ice. Um, but we had no sense at that point that there was massive destruction because everyone's little area at base camp is their own little enclave. And our little enclave, you know, you've got to go up over some rocks and then back down and then into the next camp and so on. So we could see a few camps around us and they were fine. And our camp was fine. Structurally, nothing had collapsed. But about 50 metres away, it was just the start of a disaster zone. Now, we didn't see that initially. We weren't aware of it initially. Um, and then I wanted to keep the team together. I was team leader, and I wanted to see everyone do a head count, make sure everyone's OK. It took about 10 minutes for the radios to crackle to tell us, right, we need some help. And then it was, we need some oxygen. And so our Sherpa headed down into the middle of the camp with oxygen, and I kept the team together because we didn't know if there was another one coming, if there was more avalanche. Um, and about 20 minutes after that, someone came running up and said, if anyone can carry it, we need you down here now. So we geared up, went down, and it took us maybe 50 metres outside of our camp. And then all of a sudden, once you got over a hill and looking down into the hollow, it was just destruction. And it was, it was like a plane crash site, a glove here, a down suit there, you know, 250 metres away, someone's uh, sleeping bag. No sign of any real tents, things embedded in the ground. Um, the, the poles, the metal poles that hold all of the structures together just impaled in different things people lying about the place you know, groaning, trying to, trying to get themselves gathered up um, we st and as we kept walking then you start to see okay, well there's some folks there that obviously didn't make it um, and then we got to the medical tent in the middle that was where we were going to because we reckoned that that was going to be the centre the medical tent survived just about but everything around it was gone Everything had been, had been flat, and it's amazing it survived. And they were in major triage at that point. And so we went in there, and we said to the doctor, what do you want us to do? And he said, that guy there, his leg is crushed. You need to carry him half a kilometre. We're going to set up our main triage over at the edge of camp. And so the day became that. It became carrying people and carrying supplies and doing whatever you were told. It's like being in the military. At that point, you're on, you're on a different expedition now. Your mind clips into that, and then you start carrying for the day. That's incredible. And as you said earlier, different people react in different ways to these things. I don't know how. I don't think I'd react with that sort of bravery, to be perfectly honest with you. You, you touched on the fact that there's a certain amount of training. There's more than a certain amount. A huge amount of training goes in. You're trained physically and mentally to deal with certain situations. But n nobody really, bar, bar paramedics uh, and people like that, are dealt to deal with the destruction to life that you were seeing there. You're talking about this in not in a matter-of-fact way, but it, in a way that you were thinking somewhat methodically what was the what was the emotional uh, level you were at at that for those few hours? 
I mean, it started like when we're walking across the first time, we don't know what we're walking into and it, it reveals itself and you choose to look where you choose to look at that point because you know you've got to walk through this and get to the other side of it because you're going to be put to work. And so you, you, you have to make a choice about how much exposure you want to the levels of horror that are there. Um, some people want to be first in, first responders. I didn't want to be a first responder. I didn't, frankly, want any of my team to be a first responder because I didn't think we could deal with it. And I, I stand by that now. I still don't think we're not trained to deal with that level of trauma. Now, by the time we reached the tent, um, some of the majorly injured people had been wrapped up and were inside. So we were spared that, but we, there was a lot we weren't spared, and you had no choice to see it. Um, one member of our team wanted to be first responder. He went and... You know, it's going to take him a long time to recover from the sort of things that he saw. But I, I don't know, the emotion of it kind of, it, it, firstly, it's shock. And it's like, what in God's name has happened here? You know, and then you're walking through it and your mouth is open wider and wider the whole way through. And then once someone tells you to carry this from A to B, that's what you're trained to do. You know, and all of a sudden, it's like having blinkers on. All you can see is the camp you're going to. And you're a part of a team of six now that are carrying somebody. And you're at 5,400 metres, so carrying someone is not easy work. The terrain is very difficult. It's snowing. You've got to not drop the person. You've got to get them from A to B. And then, you know, you've got to come back and do it again. But, you know, when we, when we came back to do it a second time, we, we went the whole way back to our camp. And we sat down, and I said to the guys, do you want to go again? And I said it as much to them as I did to myself. Because you have to make a conscious decision, right? We know what's out there now. Do you want to go back out there? Because we didn't, every time we'd done a carry, we walked through the destruction zone. We didn't know if there was another earthquake coming, frankly. And there's a part of it that you have to say, right, what's the, what's the most sensible thing to do in this case? Because you can talk about the most heroic thing to do. And I think heroism is kind of the byproduct of what you do rather than forethought of what right. you do. And, you know, we're thinking, is it right to go back out through that zone again? Is it stupid? You know, if something happens to us after, would we'll, we'll folks look back and say, why did they not think that through? You know, so we didn't, we didn't push ourselves back out, you know, without thinking. We, we, we sat down and, and wondered whether it was right to go back. Have you had moments yourself? You mentioned one of your colleagues. Have you had moments yourself where you've struggled to deal with what you saw? Not yet, no. Um, that, that might happen in the fullness of time. Probably will. Um, no, I, I've not, but... That's maybe because when we got through all of this and we got back down to Kathmandu, I stayed for a few weeks doing relief work. And part of that was because I wanted to help out and part of that was because I wanted to get all of the stuff out of my head as well. I wanted to process what had happened. And if you get on a plane and go home, you're going to be staring at the wall with all the visions of what's just happened in your head. And I thought, well, that's not going to work for me. So in a lot of ways, the two weeks that I spent in the villages in the Kathmandu Valley and those, those villages, you weren't seeing horror, but you were seeing utter destruction. Um, just villages leveled. Just villages completely leveled. And we were the first, in some cases, you know, the Nepal-Ireland society were the first people into some of these villages since they'd been destroyed, which is crazy. It was 10 days later. Um, but I think that helped to work a lot of the trauma out of the system. I think it did anyway. Mm. I think time will tell. I was reading today that the it's checking up the latest on, on what's been going on over there and the authorities are talking about opening up all the heritage sites again. Uh, UNESCO are saying that might not be a great idea. There there are some safety, obviously some safety concerns there. Uh, what do you make of that? Does it, are you surprised that this soon afterwards they're talking about opening stuff up again? I'm not surprised that they're pushing to open things up. Um, 
equally, I'm not surprised that UNESCO are saying uh, uh, he shouldn't be opening them. Um, I was down in Durbar Square soon after I got back into Kathmandu, and that's the main World Heritage Site. Uh, some of those buildings are 800 years old. And it was a mess. You know, it, it's rubble, and what isn't rubble is on the way to being rubble. And I certainly don't think anyone is going to be walking into those buildings. I think people will walk around those buildings. But you'd want to, you'd want to sort of measure your steps, really, because a lot of that is, is coming down. And I, I wouldn't think that structurally anyone has gone through it all and said, that's mighty fine, off you go. I yeah. think in a lot of cases uh, what they're trying to do in, in Nepal, and it's understandable, is trying to open up the country visually or superficially um, so that they can at least count on tourism coming back in the summer, in the late summer, autumn and winter. I think they're frightened that they may lose people for a long time. And tourism is such a huge, huge part of that, of that economy. I mean, tourism is probably the biggest part of their economy. Um, 30% of their economy is, is remittance from money coming back from the Gulf states and from you know, Japan and Korea, from migrant workers. Uh, so they don't have industry in country that helps propel the economy forward. The economy, especially in the countryside, is self-propelled um, using using tourism because there is no government interaction in people's lives every day. There's no pension funds. There's no taxation that's effective in the countryside at all. So government is irrelevant, really. You've given us, I have to say, Paul, an amazing glimpse into the mindset of people who do what you do. And I mentioned I read into thin air. And when I've studied that kind of th- that kind of thing and, and people like yourself who go on these sort of adventures there's a serious tunnel vision about it it becomes the biggest thing obviously in your life for a certain period of time and everything else is pushed aside it's something you feel you nearly have to get done to feel a real sense of self-worth is there any part of you any selfish part of you that is thinking jeez this the these things have happened twice. While there's way more important uh, issues at stake than you not completing a climb, is actually the competitive part of you thinking, what do I got to do here to, to catch a break, to get up Everest? Yeah, there is. And I, I tell you, when, when I stepped out of the tent when the earthquake started, the first thing I thought when I looked down and the ground started moving and it eventually occurred to me that this is an earthquake, I just thought, oh, you got to be kidding me. That was selfish because that was a, you got to be kidding me, not again. I want to finish the seven summits. And I have to be honest about that. That's what you think first, because two and a half years of full-time training has gone to that point, and eight years of part-time training has gone to that point. Um, so it would be, it'd be very unusual if I didn't think that. Um, but that gets re- replaced very quickly with what you need to do because of the situation that you're in. But afterwards, when you reflect on it, you know, those two and a half years haven't gone away. They're not, they're not expunged from memory. You know, there are two and a half years where I didn't get to see my girlfriend all that much, where I was living in an altitude house or an altitude tent most days. Um, I was training twice a day. Uh, I was on the hills at the weekend for five, six hours in driving rain or hail. That was life for, for two and a half years. And it's been every vacation since 2007. Um, and it's been every piece of my savings and investments. And I quit my job, you know, at an aerospace company to finish this. So, I mean, that, that all has value to me. That doesn't, that doesn't become zeroed because of what happened. But, you know, when I look at it in the context of what happened, it was, it was very easy to turn around and go home this time, for will you, sure. Will you go again? Um, it's possible that I will. Um, I think I'll leave it for a few years because I think they are, the mountains have taken such a shake now. I'd be reluctant to, to be a first-timer on some of those mountains um, just right now. And I think having been through two years of the worst disasters on Everest, 
you couldn't convince me that something won't happen next year. Um, and I think I'd like to see a couple of seasons happen where things go as per normal and that the routes have been re-established. There aren't huge, you know, unsurmountable crevasses between Camp 2 and Camp 3 because nobody knows that. Yeah. Nobody knows what the Lutze face looks like or the Hillary step or, you know, all those, the summit ridge. It could all be in bits for all anybody knows. So I think people who are much more experienced than I am um, need to go across those areas, assess them, and then work out what the future of Everest is going to be, if there's a future, if there's a real future at a commercial level for Everest or not. Well, listen, regardless of whether you go up again or not, Paul, we wish you well. Thanks very much. Incredible story. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Yeah, unbelievable stuff from Paul there, and I thought he told the story really well. I mentioned the video that that he took just as the climbers were. You can just see the plume of all, of of what was created by the avalanche heading towards the tent. The guys jumping into the tent, and you get a bit of a minute or a couple of minutes from then on. If you go onto Irish Seven Summits dot com, you can have a look at that and all the other amazing stuff that he's put up there. We'll put up a link to it anyway. But Irish Seven Summits dot com, it's a really good website if you have any more interest as I'm sure you may do in what Paul has gone through to try to get to the top. I should also mention, by the way, base camp is 5,400 metres up. Uh, it's not, when you hear base camp, you kind of it's think, the, oh yeah, the, that's the, just right down at yeah, the, the, the sea beach, level. The beach in India from which you start your gradual ascent to the uh, top of Everest. That's yeah. not exactly how it goes. But so. un- unbelievable reaction to adversity there from Paul. As I said in the piece, I, you know, nobody knows how they're going to react in certain situations, but uh, pretty extraordinary stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he mentioned uh, another Irish guy, Paul Greenland. Yeah, uh, that, that's Dubliner. the Dublin guy you mentioned who tried to outrun the thing. Yeah. Um, just an update on him. He's uh, back in Dublin, uh, suffered a broken arm, a broken leg. Um, uh, sorry, he had uh, the full extent of his injuries were a broken pelvis, five broken ribs, a broken hand, a punctured lung and bruises to his kidney and spleen. Uh, but he's uh, back in Ireland recovering. Uh, was uh, I'm just reading a piece from the start of May here yeah. in the Irish Times. Um, uh, he's t- determined to return to Everest, but uh, will tell his mother next March that he's heading for the Costa del Sol. <laughs> so that might be the uh, smart nice way of going about Paul. that. Now, Murph, if you don't mind tying up the weekend's GA, because we talked about the big games going on in Galway, but mm. I understand you're, can you be interested in this? Mm-hmm. Murph is back in action himself. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I, I went uh, went home this weekend. Obviously, Galway Mail was the big thing on the agenda for the weekend. Uh, but there's also a charity run held in Milltown every year. Uh, it was held last Saturday. It's called the Run for Ollie. Uh, and uh, you should check it out for next year. Uh, any uh, potential runners in the North Galway yeah, South no, Mail region? Yep. Uh, but on, so on Friday evening, the stars were aligning for me because I was going to head home Friday evening anyway. And I got a text message to say that the Milltown Junior A team uh, were in action. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if I was around to bring my boots. So I, I duly brought my boots, fully expecting to, well, I haven't been seen for a year, so I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting to be starting or anything like that. Turns out we had 17 players, two of two of whom uh, hadn't finished their leaving cert. Uh, so uh, the manager quite wisely decided not to start those two. So I'm playing right corner forward, 
Um, there has been some um, developments in Jersey uh, style since I last played. We're junior. talking tightness, I assume. Um, they, in my experience, when playing, you know, at seventeen or eighteen, they were a lot more forgiving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there was it was a more forgiving fabric, shall we say? Yeah. Um, so I wasn't feeling great, uh, considering I had to basically you know grease myself to get into this jersey. <laughs> uh, but out I trotted, playing right corner forward. After five minutes, our midfield dynamo, uh, young lad, full of full of running, yeah. uh, pulls his groin, uh, and in the ensuing tumult, the manager runs out to me and says. Can you just go out to midfield while we get this sorted out? Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, as ah, I trot and uh, proceed to play the f- following 55 minutes in midfield. At, at midfield. Oh my God. Um, and I'm not in peak physical condition at the moment. No. And unfortunately, those uh, deficiencies were you doing very a lot of obvious. Gary Pallister uh, leaning over with your hands on your knees. I was, doing, I was doing agony on your face. That's exactly. I, I, for the first kind of 20 minutes while I was out there, I was trying to hide that. Yeah. And then for the entire second half, I was like, well, <laughs> I could die man. out here if I, if I continue to try and hide my shame. Look, so, your man just standing there with his hands on his knees, yeah. just, just bent over. I've had the classic word in the year of the young lad he was marking, I'm sure. Yeah. I said, listen, mate. Listen, there's no need for either of us to become heroes here tonight, right? <laughs> so the two of us had the two of us had kind of gained an understanding over the course of the game. The game was not going well for Milton, for mm-hmm. my team. Uh, we were we were shipping quite a beating at this stage. Yeah. So my man was doing fine. I was doing okay. Mm-hmm. You know, the two of us were just it was tipping along grand. Yeah. Up until about five, there was about maybe ten minutes to go. And I don't think my man had scored. I think and, and this was kind of. You know, everyone had scored. It, there was a literally, Did you know, you score? Uh, I hit the post, Ken, from okay. uh, with an effort from fifty-five yards because I literally my brain stopped working, <laughs> and the only thing I could think to do was to swing my leg at it. The direction of the goal, but uh, so with about with about ten minutes to go, my my man still hadn't scored, hmm. and uh, he gets the ball about sixty-five yards out uh, from our goal, and he kind of got out, got there before me and had time to kind of turn and face me. As I was kind of going for the ball, you know. Yeah. So this guy, he's about like 20 years old. I can see his brain working, right? <laughs> he looks me directly in the eye and he goes, ah, yeah, I can probably take this lad for a bit of a run now, you know. So he burns me on the outside, right? And all I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to catch up to him to, to foul, foul him. him. Yeah, like I've no interest. What <laughs> I just want to foul this guy so bad, right? I can't obviously catch up with him, right? Yeah. So he, he, he turned, he kind of goes to cut inside and just, like, put the ball over the bar and, like, put me out of my misery. But then I kind of stop. Well, he kind of stops, and I kind of stop. And then he says, oh, right, okay, he's, he's actually stopped there. So it just he keeps going on the outside. So I have to... I've ran very fast at the limits of my uh, ability. I've stopped, and then I have to sprint off again. Oh. So at that moment, everything from my toe to my shoulder, yeah. every muscle in that area... Simultaneously, Simius, simultaneously, just like went into spasm. Oh, uh, un- to like <laughs> really? an unbelievable degree, right? So basically, I kind of, I, I, I know that as as that happened, there was a little involuntary. Ah! Like I've just kind of made that kind of a noise as yeah. the guy burns past me, yeah. and so he kind of keeps going, and then he's like on the twenty-one yard line, takes a shot, and I just fall over, like I just like that kind of like a like a wounded animal on the Serengeti. You know, I've yeah. been shot by a... Like, I've been yeah. tased, is what it yeah. looks like from the, sta- from the stands. 
I've been tased. I just like collapse in a heap. You know the way it like kind of if you see a hippo in like a very dusty environment, it just falls and like dust rises up. That that was me, basically. The dust just had rose up all around me. And that was uh and that was probably one of the highlights. So you didn't you didn't manage to to actually make any contact. I thought you were going to just tell me that the ball maybe hit your face or something as you fell. No, oh, at no stage did I get within five yards. And I, did the ball go over the bar? I think actually he put it wide, but at that stage I was so long past caring that yeah. it was of no interest to me whatsoever. Yeah, I'm sure Milton are delighted fair. to have you back, Murph. But it was actually a lot of fun. I'd forgotten how much fun it is to play, even when you're getting hammered. Playing sport. Yeah. Playing, playing the, sport is how is the muscle spasm? Are you, uh, are you back to... Kind of work, I'm, walking around ordering. I'm nearly out of it. I'd say by Wednesday I'll be almost entirely symptom free. Okay, but I'm not going to give. Well, that's interesting because uh, just uh, chatting to Paul Devaney earlier, our mountaineer friend, off air, he was saying that you still feel the effects of the earthquake uh, a good while later. Mm. You're still feeling it's, it's like a muscle memory in your leg that's still twitching and that kind of thing. It's, it seems like you essentially ha- have similar. Yeah, that's that's post traumatic issues. After yeah, game, I, I think that I, I I think that might that might be a, a fair assumption. There. All right, that's pretty much it from this podcast. We've got the uh, football show to come, which will feature a lot of chat about the Republic of Ireland. Where to now? Well, probably fourth in the group, I guess, is, is where to exactly. But what the ramifications are of all that? Lots of reaction from the weekend, and I myself uh, now declare myself officially part of the stag organising business. I'm, I'm open for business. Any Irish stags over to. To Spain, I'm happy to help. Secondcaptainirishtimes.com, just email. Chained to own McDevitt for the weekend. What stag hilarity you, that would if be. If you need a referee... In a handcuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you need a reference, Smithy. Uh, you can get him, I'm sure, at smithy at smithy.org. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he'll, he'll uh, vouch for me. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen, and thank you, Ken. And thank you, Ken. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later on. How did phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.